Well, good morning, Disciples Church. Grab your Bibles with me this morning and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We are going to do the, the final part of our mini-sermon series we're doing in transition from James to Jonah that we've called Soli Deo Gloria, historic Latin phrase, critical to the Protestant Reformation, that means for God's glory alone. In the early words of this gospel, John tells us about the messenger whom God ordained would testify to Jesus' arrival as God the Son in flesh, as the Messiah, the promised Messiah. The messenger's name was John the Baptist. And in chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, it says there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Today I want to walk through this early testimony of John the Baptist. It's a testimony in Scripture that's very dear to me. Uh, John the Baptist is truly one of the remarkable people in Scripture to me. And uh, for those of you who have sat under my preaching, some of you over the last 16 years, uh, you know I love this testimony. And in doing this little mini-series, I really couldn't do it without time in this passage so for a few of you, we'll be working through some things you've heard, but even for myself, it's, it's so needed and so good. For many of you, I am very excited about our time together this morning in God's Word. It, it is so important to understand why Jesus said this in Matthew eleven eleven. Truly I say to you, among those born of woman... There has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's God the Son saying that. Consider that with me for a moment. It's important because all of the reasons why we typically get excited about calling someone great are not the reason why John is called great. It is this difference that we must understand rightly today. To get us started, who is John the Baptist? John the Baptist lived uh, the first 30 years of his life in obscurity in the Judean desert. He, the story of his miraculous birth is told in Luke chapter 1. We spent time in our uh, Saturday study yesterday, for those of you who are in the Word, with us daily, the Disciples' Church reading plan, uh, looking at his mother's testimony, Elizabeth's testimony. And so John the Baptist is testified there in a special way. Mark's Gospel begins with the testimony of John the Baptist in Mark chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face 
who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John is the promised voice, calling out, preparing the people for the Lord. He is the announcer that the Lord Lord has come. But, But more than the angels who announced his birth, there's something special. This is a special man chosen by God, led by the Holy Spirit, to get ready God's chosen people for the work of Christ to save them from their sins. What is interesting about the greatest man to ever be born of woman, according to Jesus, is that we know very little about him. Therefore, what made him great had very little to do with the things that we often use to define someone who is great or very accomplished in this life. John the Apostle, who authored the Gospel of John, isn't concerned with the details of John the Baptist's life, but only what his life pointed to. In this John the Baptist's priority for living, we discover why he was so great. See, to John the Revelator, it doesn't matter... what John the Baptist wore for his clothing, where he lived. didn't matter that he ate locusts and wild honey. John, John's testimony didn't get into those details. It, it didn't matter because, as we've been saying all throughout this Soli Deo Glorious series, it's not about us. While the world wants to make it about us, While in our sin, we want to make it about us. It's not. It's about God and his glory. John the Baptist got that this is what makes him so special. And we need to get it too. Look with me. John chapter 1, 19 through 20. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now, what you need to understand about this setting and time is that huge numbers of people were flocking to hear this strange preacher in the wilderness. A great stir had been made, so much so, that many begin to wonder, is he the promised Messiah? Remember that Christ means Messiah. So he says here, I am not the Christ. Why is this a big deal for him to say so bluntly, See, John's ministry had become so big, it drew the attention of the big-time Jewish religious leaders of the day, so much so that they traveled to come see what all the buzz was about. To understand the weight of this, we have to understand the culture at the time. See, the Roman Empire was over everything, dominating the culture, the political landscape. So the Jewish world is already on edge highly taxed, oppressed, struggling, 
And now they're hearing a lot of talk about the Messiah arriving. I mean, this is generations of waiting for the Messiah. The greatest news that they could imagine. Could it be? Could he be coming in our day? The promised one of God? The Jewish people were ripe for a deliverer. John was preaching about a new beginning that was coming, telling people, get ready, repent of your old ways, look to the Messiah for salvation. How can he say that? Is he here? Is he near? What I love about John it's, it, in this is here comes the, the biggest guys, the top guys in his game, in, in the religious preaching the guys you'd want to be known and recognized with. The, the guys, as they walk in the room, you want them to go like, hey, yeah, I know this guy. But instead of letting the fear of man, that's the sin whereby we are get all too concerned about what others think of us more than what God thinks of us. Instead of being consumed by the fear of man or, or recognized by them, instead of, instead of trying to have a moment where the light goes on himself, He's all about pointing to Jesus. This is why he says so bluntly, I am not the Christ. And he leaves it at that. He he doesn't say, but, hey, check out my portfolio. It's pretty sweet. Let let me show you what I've accomplished. You know, look at this crowd. My, My church pretty big. No, no, to be extra clear, he says it again in verse 27, but with even more emphasis and separation that he draws. John 1, 27, he is the one who comes after me, speaking of Jesus. The thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He says a very culturally strong reality in that John is older than Jesus. He is his elder. And yet John says, the thongs of his sandals, I am not worthy to untie. See, to untie the sandals of another adult in that culture, in that time, was the job of the lowest of the lowest slave. Because of the status of the walking trails and the roads and the animals and, and, and the dirt. You know, the lack of like, let me jump in the hot shower for a third time for the day. Their feet were nasty. And John's saying, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. That thing that's for the lowest of the low, I'm not worthy of that. I'm not even worthy to be his slave. Wow. I mean, he's essentially saying, I'm just a man. One who has been called to point to the one who is truly in the spotlight. He is the one for whom and by whom all of this exists. He is the star. I am just a very small supporting cast member. In his epic. My job is not to have any of the spotlight. My job 
is to point you to him. I'm just a little tiny galactic nobody of a man. The one who is coming, the one whom I live for, who I get to point to, he is the holy God, the Christ. He is everything, and I am not. I want you to I want to do a little play on words here in a, in a little bit. I want you to see how John says, I am not the Christ. I am not even worthy to untie his sandals. Please don't mistake me for him. In this, John is saying, my name is I am not. That's my name. But you are looking for the one whose name is I am. See the difference, church. We have to get this, beloved. We have to start seeing what John saw so clearly. This thing called life, this thing you and I are doing every day, is not for the stuff we typically do it for. In recognizing that our name is I am not, what that doesn't mean is that we wither into a hole and feel lonely and miserable and unloved and down. Don't, don't take that from this. No, John didn't take it that way. He was a, a bold and great leader. Humble, but bold. Passionate. He was a hippie stud who lived life to the max. He, he, he took the life that he was given by the reins. And just as you and I should take hold of the life we are given and live each day to the max for his namesake, we should feel humble but not humiliated. Think about this for a moment with me. John had a lot of reasons to proclaim that he was someone important. I mean, he was not an ordinary man. He was a key subject of Old Testament prophecy. Think about that. The prophets of old have spoke about me. He's the son of a priest. Born as the result of the direct intervention of God's power in an aging, barren mother. He was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb, engaged in a ministry which drew great multitudes to him. And yet he understood rightly who Jesus was, and therefore he understood who he was in Jesus' shadow. The shadow of the holy divine. The question for us right here today, right now, what else, what other stuff, what little waste of time trophy or personal glory are you living for? As you listen to this sermon today, no matter where you're at with God, you have to hear the massive revelation this is to your everyday life. You have to make this what you are about 
why you breathe, why you go to school, why you work, why you parent, why you date, why you eat or drink, why you do anything for his fame, not yours. For his glory, not yours. So that others would praise him, not you. This has to be the potent meaning of my job here as the preaching pastor at Disciples Church. It means I am not doing my job if you come up to me after sermons and say, Great sermon today, Pastor. You're awesome. No, I'm doing my job when you say, God is great. Pastor, I'm more in love with him. I'm more satisfied with him. I'm more empowered by him as a result of your faithful preaching his word today. That's when I'm doing my job. Not when Josh is great, but when God is great. See, my job is not to make you and your friends fans of me but instead to help you truly become worshipers of Jesus. Look with me at verse 30, John 1.30. John says, speaking of Jesus, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. See, John understands and we have to begin to realize that every step of the way When you accomplish something great in your life, when you taste success, that you do so knowing that God has been on the scene long before you, that your very ability to have a mind that operates and a body that moves is by His holy power, His active sustaining in you. He's the source of all of our vision, giftedness, opportunity, creativity, energy, and breath. It is for His glory that we exist. This is the mission of our church. To glorify God through lives that are being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's for His glory. If we press forward to make it all for his glory, then we can join John as he understood. See, John knew who he wasn't. And he knew who he was. And because John knew that and embraced that and lived that, he was free from the seduction of fame. From the tyranny of comparison. From the delusion of greatness. From the never-ending scramble to get to the top of the ladder. From ego and jealousy and backbiting and pride. Do you get that in your life? If you say you get it, you're thinking, yeah, I get it. I just ask you the next layers. Does your life truly represent that? One of the biggest blessings we can give to each other is to model this for each other. 
One of the greatest blessings we can give our children is to model this for them. Hey, hey, why is daddy doing that? He's the daddy. He's the boss. The leader. And yet he's doing that? See, what about when the world sees us get low and serve others? See us point to Jesus is what they see. They, they see humility. They see the work of the gospel in our lives. Skip ahead with me for a moment to John chapter 3. And let's pick up another wave of the testimony of John the Baptist. Verse 22 Here is the the scene. We're in the Judean countryside now, and Jesus and his disciples are baptizing nearby. And Jesus' band of brothers who are baptizing, and John has his band of brothers who are baptizing. And even though John deeply understands his privileged role to point to Jesus, preparing the flock for Jesus... His disciples don't get it. And we see this revealed then in verse 26. They came to John and said, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And if we're honest, this is how we respond. Always comparing, always worried about getting left out, Always feeling gypped, shorted, trying so hard to hold on to what is ours, what I've worked so hard to build and to do. Our stuff, our status. Worried about how we stack up compared to others, how others are viewing and evaluating us. Worried about losing our business to the competitor. Worried about someone else's church getting bigger than ours? Hear, hear John's heart in his reply. Really listen to this. Verse 27, John chapter 3. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. He's lovingly saying to them, what have you brought to the table? What what are you holding on to? What did you do that's yours? You are utterly dependent in every way on him. It all belongs to him. I mean, even the things that we, we think, like, this would be fair. Like, I've been so faithful in my marriage. Why is it... Why am I losing a spouse at this age? Or, or, or I've been so hardworking in my job. Why is my 401k being taken away? Or, or, or I really love my kids so well. Why are they turning left or right? It is God who must give new birth and new life. 
we cannot even, church, we cannot even receive the good news until we're given new birth and ears to hear and eyes to see. Oh, how we need to heed these words. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. We are a people who feel we deserve so much. We, we feel we're owed. We often believe we are the ones who have produced something. Work so hard just to have it taken away. Just to have another guy step in and take what is mine. Again, if you've been around Disciples Church any length of time, you hear that I quote this passage a lot. David's prayer in 1 Chronicles 29. His heart here also gets this thing we need to get this morning. Verse 13 through 17, he says, Oh, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And who are my people that we could give anything to you? Everything we have has come from you, and we give you only what you have already given us. We are here only for a moment, visitors and strangers in the land as our ancestors were before us. Our days on earth are like a passing shadow, gone so soon without a trace. O oh Lord our God, even these materials that we've gathered to build the temple to honor your holy name come from you. It all belongs to you. I know, my God, that you examine our hearts and rejoice when you find integrity there. You know I've done all this with good motives. I've watched your people offer their gifts willingly and joyously. This is the heart I long for us to have, Disciples Church. That we see that we've not produced anything that God has not given to us or empowered us to do. He is who we thank and praise and honor with our lives, with our stuff, with our children, with our days, with our money. Paul says it well in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Everything we give God is essentially something He's already given us covered this in part one of our series this mini series soli deo gloria romans chapter 11 verse 35 or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid because he owns it all no one can give a gift to god so that we might have to be repaid by him or or somehow because we did this or that put god in our debt can't give God something he doesn't already own. can't put God in your debt. If everything is his then, you and I have nothing to give him that he doesn't already own. Which means in the end, God owes 
no man anything. He owes us nothing. Your very existence has been gifted to you by his grace. Every bit of laughter, every morsel of food you have tasted and enjoyed, every smile that has adorned your face, he gave to you. He owes you nothing. Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Do you get that at your core? John does. A person cannot receive one thing unless it is given him from heaven. He's saying to his guys, why would we make any of this about us? Stop what you're doing. It's all from God. It's all for God. And then in verse 28 and 29... You yourselves bear me witness that I have said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Notice how deeply John enjoys the privilege of building his congregation only to give it away to the glory of the Lord. To give it to Jesus. He gets it. This life is not for him. It's not for his fame. It's not for his name, but for the Lord's. Making much of Jesus is an unbelievably great privilege to him. I get to live for the glory of the king and not some waste of time, temporary, goes away, clap, clap, after school special that no one cares about or that echoes only in temporary time and space. I get to be part of the resounding applause for the King of Kings that will resound for eternity. John John knows this is Jesus. This is God in flesh. The promised Messiah. The one whose name is I Am. When John says, I am not the Christ, but I am his friend, I rejoice at his voice. He's showing that God is the prize of all prizes. And I get to know him personally, to live for his glory. That is my joy of all joys. In this, now listen carefully, John is essentially saying, I am not, but I know I am. My name is I am not. His name is I am. I am not, but I know him. I know the great I am. And that is my greatest joy. The good news of the gospel 
that we, we, would, we would see this with clarity and it, it would convict us unto dying to ourselves to lay it all at the altar and say it all belongs to you. We must realize the fullness of who we are outside of Christ. Sinners deserving of his eternal wrath. That our name is I am not. We also must see who God is. Holy, almighty, worthy of eternal praise. His name is I am. And just like John that we too would say I am not. But in Christ I know I am. I know the great I am. Look how in verse 29 he emphasizes his joy. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore this joy of mine is now complete. Those are strong words. Rejoices greatly. This joy of mine is now complete. It's great joy. It's complete joy. It's not God is great, I love that, but God, I really wish you would do A, B, and C, and D in my life. How is your testimony, how is your longing showing that He is incomplete for your joy? The bridegroom gets the attention. The cameras are flashing all in that direction. The rice is flying in that direction. The honeymoon is that direction. Nobody glances back at the silenced voice sitting on the church steps. The voice once privileged with announcing the bridegroom is replaced by the voice of the bridegroom. What is John's response to this? To his diminishing, to John's decreasing Complete joy. Do you see how in a modern, sinful, secular culture, that's insane. But only in Christ. And only then when we get what it is to be in Him and to be complete in our joy in Him, that's our response to our diminishing. Look at something else in verse 29. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Why the mention of the bridegroom's voice? Why does the friend of the bridegroom rejoice greatly over the bridegroom's voice? This is pretty potently connected to all the prophecy about John. He is prophesied for generations to be the voice. Crying in the wilderness. His own voice has been the vehicle of God to gather these huge crowds. But now they're leaving him to go follow Jesus. Why? Because another voice is being heard. A greater voice, a stronger voice. Listen to Jesus' words in John 10, 3 and 4. The sheep hear his voice. Speaking of himself as the good shepherd. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. The bridegroom has a bride and the bride knows the voice of her husband. 
John rejoices in the voice of the bridegroom because it is the voice that gathers the bride, the church, the redeemed. Gathers her precisely according to his eternal plan and away from John. Now stay with me. This is why the next words out of John's mouth in verse 30 are so powerful. What he's saying here, we have to get the very famous John 3.30. Speaking of Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. He's saying, this is what I'm here to do, and you too. And it's happening, it's happening, and so I will rejoice. This is what I'm here to tell you today. I am called to be the shepherd, one of the shepherds, preaching pastor here at Disciples Church. A voice that gets to point to Jesus. To make much of Christ in all I do. Not so this church will get big, but so Jesus' kingdom will get big. Not so more people come hear me, but so they come to Jesus and come to love and know and worship him. My deep prayer for this church is not that we would become a big church like we once were in all of the Southern California Valley. But that we would be a faithful church who is constantly discipling and sending people, dying to ourselves to make it about Him. Why? Because it's not about our church. Because it's not about the name of Disciples Church. It's, it's not about the numbers or the competition with other churches. It's about being the voice that leads people to His voice. To be a part of his flock. To know him. He must increase and we must decrease, church. He must become greater and greater. We must become less and less. These are words that pierce the flesh. And at the same time free us. This needs to be true in my life. This needs to be true in your life. This needs to be true in our church's life. It can't be about me. It can't be about you. It must be about Him. Amen? He must increase and I must decrease. Jesus has the center stage and John is all the more happy to point people to Him. What does it look like if you and I are actively living our lives to increase the name of Jesus and decrease the name of ourselves? How do we even begin to do this? We have to have a right perspective of God and who we are in light of God. John helps us with this in the next verse. Look at verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. John's testimony here is about Jesus' deity. He who comes from above 
is above all. Jesus is God. He is above all things. He is worthy of our praise and our obedience and our devotion. John says it again at the end of the verse. He who comes from heaven is above all. In the middle of the verse, he shows the contrast of mankind saying, He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. This is a great revelation of truth about who God is and who we are in comparison to Him. See, when we rightly understand His story, epic story, our part of that as the supporting cast, we begin to live this out correctly. The story of life is an epic already in progress. It is written, produced, directed, and starring God. The story of us is, is, is if God ordains it to give us new life, that we get to be part of a supporting cast that points to him. If we don't rightly get who he is and who we are in light of him, we are doomed to struggle all of our lives as we are trying to convince ourselves that we should get a part of that starring role. I read again a passage we preached in the opening of this series, Romans 11, 33-36. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been His counselor, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The creator has come. Put on flesh. Died in our place. Risen again. God has ordained that we are not only given life but invited into this epic, this eternal epic we don't counsel the counselor. We don't tell him how it should go. He owes us nothing. We don't give him anything that's not already his. We must understand that we've arrived onto, his, onto the scene, onto his scene, already in progress. Who are we to think even for a moment that we get to say how things should go? It's his story. We have to get back to this understanding, church. Because every day that we try to make this life about us and about ours, we're trying to move something that is immovable. Making life very frustrating and very hard. John is highlighting the bigness of Jesus as God. He's doing this very thing. He, he says in John 3.30, He's pressing God up and rightly identifying man is down. He must increase. We must decrease. And I just say, what do you do in your daily life to press God up and to humble yourself? To make much of his name and not yours. To advance his kingdom and not your own. Some of you are guilty of still way too tightly clinging to your retirement plan. To the car you're saving for. To the, to the memories and the temporary that you want to have with your kids or whatever these other things are. And it all belongs to him. Every part of it, every ounce of it. What does it look like to continue to die to ourselves that Christ would reign in us for his glory? 
Paul says it well in Romans 9.20. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Who are you? It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about God and his eternal glory and fame. Amen? Amen. May it be so in our lives every day until he calls us home. Soli Deo Gloria, for God's glory alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that you've provided for us to study your holy word. We thank you for your eternal and sovereign plan for the life of John the Baptist. We thank you for the insight that we have to make war with all the things of the reasons why we call someone great that it would truly change us through and through and repurpose our days and our times and our management of our hours and all that you're doing for your glory alone. Thank you for your humble conviction, the the, the conviction that you bring upon us that, 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 that humbles us, is what I mean. I thank you for your grace and your patience and your work in us and through us. It's all for your glory, Lord. We love you and we worship you, not only in this song, but in the minutes and hours and days to come. As you ordain it, in Jesus' name we pray.